this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is Douglas Rushkoff, who's named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. Douglas is an award-winning writer, documentarian, and lecturer on technology, economics, and culture. He's a professor of media theory and digital economics at Queen's College, City University of New York, and a research fellow at the Institute for the Future. Douglas has authored 20 books, the latest of which is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. Douglas Rushkoff, welcome to Monocle Reads. Hi, it's good to be with you. Tell me how this came about. You were invited to a fabulous resort. What happened next? Yeah, I thought I was being invited to do a talk. You know, I do talks. Those of us who write books do talks to keep the lights on. And um, I thought it was it was just going to be a great high paid talk for a uh, bunch of technology investors. They always want me to wax on about the digital future so they can make notes and figure out how to invest. And before they um, took me out on the stage, these five guys were brought into my little green room and it turned out there was no stage, that this was it. These five wealthy men sitting around a table peppering me with very binary questions about, you know, the digital future. Should they invest in augmented reality or virtual reality, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum? And then finally one of them asked, Alaska or New Zealand? And the rest of the hour was spent on their uh, bunker strategies. How can they survive the event? You know, the uh, virus or climate catastrophe or economic revolution that ended life as we know it. <laughs> it was, and it was bizarre. And I, I realized that, that these men, they're trying to, to earn enough money and build enough technology so that they can insulate themselves from the reality they're creating by earning money and building technology in that way. Quite, quite shocking. And what do they imagine that the event will be? I mean, I think they're, they're mostly concerned with uh, either climate change or a revolution of some kind, um, electromagnetic pulse, uh, an accidental or intentional nuclear strike. I mean, they're, they're really, you know, they're kind of reading the tea leaves and looking at the future and realizing that, you know, they or their kind have been, you know, extracting value from people and places for centuries at the expense of community and any sense of mutual aid or democratic process. And they know that that can't go on forever, that there's too many signs of this thing breaking down. But instead of kind of turning back and saying, oh, okay, how can I make the world a place that I don't have to escape from? They're instead investing in how can I, how can I protect myself from the masses who are going to be coming after me with pitchforks? Extraordinary. And I mean, one of them even asked that. He said, how do I maintain authority over my security force after the event? What was your answer to that? Yeah, it's odd, you know, so they're not totally stupid. They they look at the scenario and realize, well, right, if I'm bringing in, because they all are, they all have these contracts with the Navy SEALs to come fly out at the first, you know, <laughs> the first moment of catastrophe to come protect them on their eco farm.
farms or up on the top of their uh, bunker penthouses. But they are thinking, well, if the, everything does collapse, if it breaks, if government breaks, then how do they pay their security force? How do they keep these guys from just taking over and kicking them out? And uh, it was sad. They, they were talking about, well, could we have like robot enforcers or some kind of shock collars? Or maybe if I'm the only one who has the combination to the, where the food is being kept, or if we have their, their families in some kind of captivity, you know, they're just nightmare scenarios. And I told them, well, the, the way to get your guards to take good care of you after the apocalypse is for you to take good care of them today. And I, I joked, I guess, although I was being serious, I said, you know, why don't you, you know, pay for your head of security's daughter's bat mitzvah today, and, and then he won't kill you when the crisis comes. And I mean, along the way, writing this book, you have met some extraordinary people, but they all seem to be captured by what you call the mindset. Yeah, you know, it was really, it was, it was this moment with these men really did upset me. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, I feel like, you know, we, we always knew, but now we really, really know, you know, the, the powerful people are running away, you know, whether it's to, to their shelters or Mars or seasteading or uploading their consciousness or running away to the metaverse, that they, they have no intention of caring for us. And so I really wanted to trace back, you know, where did this come from? And yeah, I came up with this term. I'm calling it the mindset, which is this this Silicon Valley, you know, contention that with enough money and enough tech, they can escape any problem and run away from it. And so then I, you know, I kind of looked at, well, what is what is this mindset? And, you know, on the one hand, the main idea of the mindset is this this what I'm calling the insulation equation that they can outrun all the externalized damage that they're creating. But there's also a kind of a of an atheistic scientism, you know, not just a belief in science or or atheism or, a, you know, a, a doubt in God, but but a refusal to believe that there's anything going on here more than meets the eye. And that gives them a kind of uh, uh, immoral courage to do anything to other people because it really doesn't matter. They understand human relationships as a market phenomenon. They understand everything in terms of IP and their own contributions. And they, they hold, I guess most importantly, they have this understanding that they can kind of neutralize the unknown by dominating it and deanimating it. It goes all the way back to Francis Bacon and the, the invention of, of empirical science, the idea that, that science will let us hold down nature and, and she will submit to our will. And it's such an, an abstract, dominating understanding of the world that we can keep doing stuff to keep it under control. More progress will give us more choice. You know, this kind of straight line of linear Western progress, keep going. But they've kind of gone over the cliff and they're in that moment, like in the cartoon, when you look down below and they see, uh-oh, you know, before they fall. And uh, that's why they're looking for a way out. And you write that actually they are actively seeking an end game. The mindset requires an end game. Yeah, it is interesting because, yeah, it's a very, you know, if you think about it in terms of Western progress, you know, or, or even the old Aristotelian narrative of Greek tragedy, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, or this very kind of 
oversimplified um, young male understanding of sexuality. You know, that conquest, climax, and sleep. You know, it's get there. It's this Marvel, you know, the Marvel Universe endgame. When's the big, you know, the big finale? So, yeah, they... They just as they look at their businesses in terms of IPOs and exits, you know, and they look at relationships in terms of winning and domination. They look at the self in terms of, of sovereignty and mastery. When they look at the whole story, yeah, how does this end? They don't have a, an understanding of, of sustainability or circularity or the cyclical nature of anything or no such thing as renewal. There's just, you know, shoot it and kill it take it and own it and when you look at the whole world that way it's like well where does this end and where am I going to be where's my where's my castle yeah well castles is really what you write about next because you go and you discover various billionaire bunker strategies what are some of those well it's interesting the as far as I can tell none of them work you know and I'm I'm a media theorist you know I'm not I'm not a disaster, a disaster specialist, but, you know, the most simple ones are kind of glorified versions of the fallout shelters that uh, Midwestern farmers use when, you know, there's a big storm or a tornado that's going to come. A lot of companies have bought shipping containers or things like shipping containers, and then you kind of bury it under the ground and then, you know, you kit it out with a, a whatever, a microwave and a couple of solar panels and hope that you can last under there. And the companies that make those things now are making, you know, super deluxe ones where they'll take five or six shipping containers and kind of attach them into different rooms and let someone have a hot tub down there. But it's all fantasy. I mean, there there's uh, shipping containers that, that will have like a little heated swimming pool inside it. And I saw one of these guys had plans for the one that he's building under the ground. And I'm like, well, I know people that have heated pools and they're constantly going on the blink or need a new filter or need a, where are you going to be getting parts for your heated pool after the apocalypse? And it's like, they don't really even think about it quite that far. So there's those, there's deluxe ones where you can get almost like, they're almost like timeshares. You spend like five or $10 million now and they promise that you could be one of the residents of, they look kind of like a, a senior, you know, old age homes, you know, these sort of compounds where they, they promise there's people that are going to cook for you and chefs and servants. I just, again, don't, the first billionaires kind of realize that after society breaks down, why are people, certain people going to agree to be chefs in this situation and other ones are <laughs> going to be the wealthy who get to be served unless there's some, some time when you get to come out of that with your wealth. And then others are looking at, uh, you know, building their own things or, the ones I liked the best were these more like farm-like places. I met a guy named J.C. Cole. He actually, I wrote an article about the billionaires and then he emailed me and said, you got to tell the billionaires about this. He's got these farms uh, and they're they're smart. I mean, he's a, a real conservative guy, but he understands the basics of, of farming and he wants to have sustainable eco farms where you've got your own roosters and chickens and your own seeds so they don't need to depend on 
on industrial agriculture to keep the farm going. So it's basically a, a renewable farm that's armed to the teeth, right, <laughs> with the Navy SEALs who are there to protect the farm from everyone else is going to come aboard. But he can't get any billionaires to buy into the farm because part of the idea of the farm is that everybody is working the farm. He wants to build something of a community there. And that's... <laughs> That's not what the billionaires want. And part of the money that he's raising to, to build these farms, he wants to use to educate people around the country how to build their own farms so they can sustain themselves because he understands that the more people there are on sustainable farms throughout, you know, throughout the world when the crisis comes, the fewer people they're going to be banging at the gate to get into his farm. But that's not the way the billionaires think about it. They, they don't think in terms of, you know, kind of helping others to make Make the world better for themselves they just want to escape they just want they just want more bars so whose fault is it is it is it technology is it capitalism is it a mixture of both that's the thing you know i've for years i've just blamed capitalism you know i was one of the early uh, wonderful cyberpunk net pioneers and i was so happy with the net being this wonderful countercultural phenomenon that was going to unleash the wild potential of the collective human imagination and then you know wired magazine and all the investors came along and turned the net into kind of a poster child for the nasdaq stock exchange and everything became about ipos and all the great kids who were developing interesting technologies, all those technologies were turned against the people they were built for. And, and media and technology became really more a question or less a question, I guess, of what can people do with technology than what can technology do to people? How can we use technology to get people to buy more stuff, pay more attention, turn over more data? And that's definitely true. And that led to, you know, this awful extractive tech billionaire mindset. But to be honest, you know, from some of the earliest days, we've looked at technology as a way of controlling, controlling reality. I remember when um, counterculture legend uh, Timothy Leary was a friend of mine. He was a big uh, kind of a psychedelics guru of the 60s and 70s. But he got into the technology revolution and he was sitting there at his house reading Stuart Brand's first book about MIT Media Lab and the MIT Media Lab is where a lot of you know new technologies were being developed and the internet was being theorized and Timothy Leary reads the book all day long writing in it with a, a felt tip pen and I'm thinking he's loving this thing and as soon as he's done he throws it across the room and he goes Ugh! and I go what what's wrong and he goes first off only three percent less than three percent of the people in the index are women that's how you know there's a, an initial problem. And I said, what else? And he goes, well, these guys, these technologists at MIT, they are trying to recreate the womb with their technology. Their mothers or their parents or someone wasn't able to anticipate their every need, and now they believe they can build a technological bubble around themselves that can bring them everything they want before they even know they want it without them having to ever interact with another human being. So on a certain level, I think he's right that these apocalyptic nightmares in some ways are their deepest wish that they can have technology around them and not people you know for love for attention for entertainment for everything and live in a world that you know everything is predictable and predicated 
on their will. Mm. It's really very shocking. I wonder if you think that that selfishness is inherent within us. Are we all at some level driven to do that just to make sure that we're okay? We are driven by selfishness and there've always been conquerors and monopolists who've built empires on their selfishness, you know, <laughs> whether it's the Rockefellers or Caesar or, you know, Alexander the Great. But you know, never before have they had the technologies capable of destroying the whole, <laughs> the whole thing uh, for everybody else. And I don't think before have they ever been, has their mindset been kind of trickling down to the rest of us in this kind of exponential godlike understanding of the world. You know, it's not coincidence that the scientists and technologists that I was interacting with were also very friendly with, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, who's a person who believed that he was a god and can sort of operate one level above the rest of humanity and, you know, enslave women and spread his seed and create his own little master race. You know, if you really are a staunch believer in the mindset, if you believe that the object of the game is to amass as much power as possible through money and technology and that there is you know there is no god there is no subtle connection between people there is no such thing really as love or spirit or morality you know you're going to surrender to your selfishness but if you have any kind of civic sensibility, any need for true intimacy, if you have the ability to forge intimate connections with other human beings, then at least there's something pushing against that selfishness. Yes, I want my own house. Yes, I want my own car. Yes, I want a retirement plan. But I also want, you know, a partner. I want a community. I want kids. I want friends. And, you know, and that's what sort of for most of us, puts some governor on the drive for selfishness. Mm. I mean, is there any sense of wanting to save the world, not just for themselves, but for everyone? I mean, surely that's in, in not only the rich's interest, but in all of our interests. They do have some drive to save the world, but... They want to save the world with some big technological solution that they own. You know, it's like the simple solution, of course, is just to wind down for people to do a bit less, to, you know, buy and sell less, to spend more time with loved ones, to, you know, stop trying to grow the economy and technology and destroy the planet, you know, just a, a bit of degrowth. But that's really not these guys they see the solution is always going to be pedal to the metal, is going to be more. There's going to be some kind of techno-solutionist giant plan. We're going to shoot sulfur into the atmosphere or, you know, get a, think of an X prize that, you know, will we'll give $100 million to the person who figures out the best single solution. So again, it's this, these godlike total solutions. And I've met a lot of those guys too. They always say they have a stack. 
A, a stack is, is, a, is a collection of software that they believe they can use to build a new world. Just give me a, a clear-cut forest, or there's a project called Neom in Saudi Arabia where they want to build on the desert a giant, super high-tech oasis. They have these giant solutions. If only we would do exactly what they say, install their software and build all the, the solar panel yeah. I wonder then if it's possible to, to force these people to be a force for good. Are they so rich they transcend politics? Is politics part of it? Do we have to change the way the world is run? Well, you know, um, they would say we have to change the way the world is run. And there, there are, I feel like there's two groups among them. There is a kind of a right wing and a left wing. You know, the left wing of them are really guys who are happy to develop the most disorienting and confusing technologies that promote disinformation. They were all willing to go there right up until the time Trump was elected. And then they said, uh-oh, this kind of backfired. And that's when they started to talk about humane technology and they made documentaries like The Social Dilemma and they're all worried, uh-oh, you know, it's fine to let everybody go crazy unless it's going to lead to, you know, some kind of fascism that I can't control. So there's those guys, but the ones who are even scarier are the ones kind of like, you know, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk who are what we call accelerationists. They have the same kind of political philosophy as Steve Bannon or Trump. And the idea is, let's bring it on. Let's just tear it all down. Let's break the whole thing so that we can start over. And they talk about things like game B, like now we're living in game A. They want us to get to game B already. And the way you do that is by let this society crumble, give up on this, bring it down so we can start fresh. And it, again, it's a technologist's view, like you can somehow reboot reality. Let's just, you know, defrag the hard drive of civilization. Let's just wipe it clean and start coding fresh. So, you know, that's why they go out. They want to either go on Mars or build these what they call seasteading communities which are these kind of connected high-tech rafts out in the middle of the ocean. They want to start civilization over, clear-cut the forest and build something new. And that's kind of the scarier people to me, you know, that they really think you can, that we could build something after the end of this civilization. And Douglas, I mean, to end, there is really no escape, is there? I mean, we've got to act now to save our planet, to try and tamp down world wars, to stop disease. There is no later. Right. And that shouldn't be sad. That should be happy. Right. There is no escape. Right. There is no escape. So that means there's no sense in seeing civilization as the first stage of the rocket that we leave behind as Elon Musk and his best friends and Jeff Bezos go to Mars and start again. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. Not in the next thousands of years anyway. And those kinds of colonies would all need to be supported by Earth stuff. You know, <laughs> it wouldn't work. And there'd be AI out there. So he's not getting away from the AI he fears either. No, but the beauty is, yes, we are called 
to care for one another and this planet as if it were our home. You know, and like you say, you don't poop where you eat. This is it. This is what we have. And this is it shouldn't be a sad, oh, no, you mean this is it? No, this is it. We're here. That turn to your neighbor, look in their eyes. They're here. It's reason to celebrate that we're going to stop this westward colonial expansion to new ground and new ground and new ground. We're done. This is it. We've seen it. The world is round. We've seen it from space. This is where we are. And it's entirely sustainable. Rather than trying to extract as many resources and burn as much as possible in order to get away, which has been our strategy for the last couple of thousand years, what we've got to do instead is see how can we engender more regenerative systems that keep everyone going for as long as possible. It's a different narrative of game. These guys play games in order to win. But once you've won, the game is over. The idea is to move into what we call infinite games. The reason you play is to keep playing. You don't want anyone to win. You want to keep the game going like a fantasy role-playing game, like an adventure, like a story. How long can we keep this going? And when you take that model, it's not about ownership. It's not about winning. It's not about conquest and and domination it's about participation collaboration and play and i do think in some ways i mean in this book i ended up writing it in a very playful way to keep us laughing at these people rather than being afraid of them because they're pathetic they're small-minded not big-minded they just happen to be rich but we can take care of that ourselves douglas it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you thank you oh thank you thanks so much for having me Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires is by Douglas Rushkoff and it's published by Scribe. You've been listening to Monocle Reads thanks to the producer Nora Hull, studio manager Krista Blackwell and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>